0: From the American Tobacco Historic District in downtown Durham, this is Due South on WUNC. I'm Leonida Inge. Get ready for our new series, HBCU 101. From Elizabeth City State University in the northeastern part of the state to Johnson C. Smith University in Charlotte, North Carolina has more historically black colleges and universities than almost any other state. In fact, most HBCUs are in the South, like my alma mater, Florida A&M University. The series HBCU 101 casts a spotlight on these schools of higher learning while revealing their strengths, struggles, and resiliency. NPR's Aisha Roscoe is host of Weekend Edition Sunday
1: and editor of the new book HBCU Made. I knew that I had to do it. I had to... um, do this book as a way, just a little way, of giving a little bit back of so much that was given to me.
0: Aisha is a graduate of Howard University in Washington, D.C., and so is Reverend Dr. Harry L. White Jr. and his wife, Dr. Shantae Brown-White of Raleigh. But where will their daughter Kai, a high school senior, attend college this fall?
2: I want Kai to have all of her options open. I think she will thrive at a Chapel Hill, at a Sanford, a UNC Charlotte, as she will thrive at a Howard, Winston-Salem State University, or A&T.
0: That beat is coming from members of Kappa Kappa Psi National Band Fraternity at North Carolina Central University. We're stepping high and kicking off our recurring series, HBCU 101, with a visit from the president of the oldest HBCU in the South, Dr. Paulette Dillard, president of Shaw University. Welcome
3: to Due South. Thank you. This is truly an honor to be here with you at Due South. Thank you so much. So let's talk for a
0: moment about the many historical distinctions that Shaw holds.
3: Uh, Thank you so much. Shaw is privileged to, in addition to being uh, the first historically black college and universities founded in the southern United States, is also the first institution, not HBCU, but institution to have a medical school with a four-year curriculum. Now, let me be clear. It wasn't the first medical school. But it was the first medical school with a four-year curriculum, which is the model that is in use today. Um, And so we are so proud of that um, distinction. Uh, Shaw University happens to have produced uh, the leaders and founders of several other institutions in North Carolina. The the founder of North Carolina Central University was a Shaw University graduate. And so many of Shaw's early graduates went on to either found or lead other institutions, um, especially in the state of North Carolina, for which we are extremely proud. What continues, I guess,
0: to make the South, you think, a breeding ground for Black professionals? You know, is it the HBCUs? That's
3: an excellent question. Um, If you think about um, uh, slavery and the aftermath of of slavery the impact was greatest in the south and so the majority of our institutions are in the southern united states because that's where the need was the data is clear the emergence of the black middle class can be directly attributed to hbcu educations and hbcus being located in cities that you could build you know community and businesses around Well, did you always want to be
0: the president of Shaw University or just a college president at all? What was your path to Shaw?
3: I'm asked that question a lot. (laughs) And if I am honest, that was not on my radar screen to be the president of a historically black college and university. But it was always on my radar screen to to lead a corporation to to be in charge, when I was very young, and one of my I think it was my twelfth birthday, um, I asked my parents for a fancy fountain pen, mm. and they, oh, what on earth do you want with a fountain pen? And I said I have to practice writing my name. Because you know I'm gonna have to sign stuff, you know, in you know in my in my role, and needless to say, I spend a lot of time signing things these days. But I always wanted to be um, in a position to be a difference maker. I started out in healthcare and moved up into senior administration of a healthcare company, uh, diagnostic laboratory medicine, and so when I came to higher ed, it was what I call my give back years. I attended three historically black colleges and universities. I have a undergraduate degree from Barbara Scotia College in Concord, North Carolina, which is working diligently to get its accreditation restored and to reopen. And I have a master's degree from Tennessee State University. I'm my mother's alma mater. <laughs> and I have a PhD from Clark Atlanta University. So I am a three-time HBCU graduate. And when I um left um uh, medicine, healthcare and came to Shaw University after completing my PhD work, it was my give back. I wanted to tell the story. It isn't where you start, it's where you end up. What a journey. You know, so what's on the horizon for Shaw, say, in the next
0: five years?
3: Wow, that's a great um, intro into what's happening at Shaw University. We just completed a year-long process of getting the campus rezoned, um, recognizing that in we are located in downtown Raleigh. So we aren't able to expand the footprint um, in land, but we can go up, so we've had the campus rezoned to be able to take advantage of um, airspace for uh, to build density.
0: What are some of your challenges? You know, being the president of Shaw University, or maybe challenges of many HBCU
3: presidents today. Excellent question, because the challenges are many. Most of our campuses have. Um, a historical infrastructure. And that infrastructure is in need of, you know, maintenance, replacement, those kind of things. And when you are a, a private um, historically black college like Shaw University, you are totally dependent upon tuition to operate the university. So that doesn't leave very much uh, funding for the infrastructure upgrades and all the many other things that happen. Those hundred year old buildings. Those hundred year old buildings. Um, also, technology, uh, hiring and keeping qualified faculty and staff. All of those things are challenges when you have historically been underfunded. You're the 18th president of Shaw and you're the
0: university's fourth female president. And, you know, there's been quite a lot of discussion about the unique challenges that black women face in academia.
3: So what are any insights into this? The question of gender in leadership, the the record is clear. You know, women are paid far less. Women are expected to do more with less. And when you combine that with the inequities associated with race, then you've got race and gender, you know, a double, you know, uh, you know, challenge for uh, women that look like me in leadership because we're succeeding in a role that was not designed for us. But we are held to, you know, a standard of achievement. That does not come with the support mechanisms necessary to achieve that. But yet, you know, we still are making, you know, impact in the field. So I think that we are, you know, coming front and center in recognizing how difficult the challenge is. And now we just have to make sure that the scaffolding is in place to allow. Uh, women, you know, to excel. I like to think and feel you're supported at Shaw. I feel supported at Shaw. I have challenges at Shaw. I have, um, you know, um, you know, issues that, you know, are, you know, broader than just me and my leadership. But I can honestly say that I feel You know, supported. Well, Dr. Paulette Dillard,
0: it's been a pleasure. Your insight, um, what you bring, the breath that you bring to your institution, I'm sure is deeply valued by many across the whole HBCU umbrella. So thank you so much for being here today. Dr. Paulette Dillard is the president of Shaw University.
3: Thank you so much. And I want to share with you that HBCUs are a very tight-knit group and we support each other, love each other, and are excited that you are taking time uh, to highlight our institutions. Thank you so much. Thank you. Coming
0: up, a chat with NPR's Aisha Roscoe about her new book, HBCU Made. You're listening to Do South. Welcome back to Do South and our series HBCU 101. I'm sure by now many listeners know I'm a proud graduate of an HBCU, and so was my grandmother Cassie, my parents, my siblings, and many aunts, uncles, and cousins. I credit my alma mater with shaping the foundation of my career and my adult life. So when Aisha Roscoe, Host of NPR's Weekend Edition Sunday approached me to write about my experiences as an HBCU student for her new book. I jumped on it. The book is called HBCU Made: A Celebration of the Black College Experience. It's a
3: different world than where you
1: come
0: from. Aisha, welcome to Do South.
1: Well, thank you so much for having me. And I just want to say I'm so grateful that you are a part of this book.
0: Oh, thank you very much. It it was, you know, it was stressful and it was just emotional and Mm -hmm. it brought about everything because you just really had to put down on paper what you had been feeling probably most of your life, Aisha. It wasn't easy. It wasn't easy getting it out.
1: Yeah, no. And your your essay is so personal and so um so touching and you know definitely leads to tears. Um and yeah, I, I can see that. I can see that.
0: Well, you know, we're here today because we've got a lot in common, girl. You know, we we both chose HBCUs for our education, maybe with a little nudging from our families, maybe. And um, so in a way, this book is like the first of its kind. It's a collection of personal essays and notable HBC alumni. And it's really the intimacy you were talking about of, of the accounts that sets the book apart. Oh, I also forgot to mention that you grew up in Durham, North Carolina. <laughs> that's where yes. that's, that's where we're located at, at Due South. So we have that in common too. But but tell mm-hmm. me what really inspired you to even start this project.
1: Well, you know, the publishing company Algonquin, you know, came to me. Um and Algonquin is also located in, in North Carolina. Um, but they, they came to me and they said, um, would you be interested in pulling together a collection of essays? From HBCU graduates, um, and that this had not been done before. Having HBCU graduates telling their own stories about why attending a historically Black college or university um, really made a difference in their lives. And so, my first thought was you know surprise. because I'm like this hasn't been done yeah how Shocking. could this yeah like how could this not already be done in, in multiple volumes um and so then I was like well let me think about it a little bit because I had just started a uh, hosting weekend edition Sunday um but then you know as I thought about you know, my time at Howard University and how much that meant to me and how much that impacted my life, I knew that I had to do it. I had to um, do this book as a way, just a little way of giving a little bit back of so much that was given to me. Um, And so I'm so happy and feel so blessed to have been able to pull it together.
0: Like you said, you attended Howard University University, um, who played Florida a and University in the Celebration <laughs> She's Bowl not, let that go. Bowl oh not too goodness. long ago. And so, fam, you beat Howard
1: oh my in December
0: for like the HBCU championship, the Swag versus the MEAC. Yes, I have to, to get that out there. But you write, you write beautifully about attending Howard University in the introduction of the book. And you really credit the university with providing you with like a true metamorphosis, you know, talk a little bit about that because I also know your mother attended it. Um, an HBCU was it Winston Salem State? Winston Salem mm-hmm. State,
1: yes. My mother attended Winston Salem State. i aunts and uncles attended Winston Salem State, and and my sister attended Winston Salem State. So they're part of the Ramalies. So they'll be, you know, sure to to talk about that. And my brother went to Shaw, um, and and so I, you know, all of us went to HBCUs. I I chose Howard, um, because I wanted to get away from. school you know, North Carolina. I love North Carolina, but I wanted to get away. I, you know, I wanted to do something different. And then I, I felt like Howard, to me, it was the Mecca. Like, it just seemed so cool and prestigious and it had a journalism program. And, you know, I felt like, you know, they, they based Hillman at, uh you know, on a, in a different world on Howard. And I, I just, it felt like a very cool place and that if I could make it there, then maybe I could make it anywhere. Um, and when I actually went to visit for the first time and and saw the Delta strolling on the yard and saw all of these beautiful Black people, I was like... I want this to be my home, um, and, and it was, it, it really was.
0: I don't know, was Howard University your first choice? Because I know there was some talk that you thought you may go to UNC Chapel Hill, for example.
1: Yeah, I mean, it was so I applied to UNC Chapel Hill, Howard, and then Ithaca. I don't know why I applied to Ithaca in, in upstate New York. I would to, like not... me, you
0: wanted to get as far away from home yes. as possible.
1: <laughs> yeah. yeah, but I did not think I would do well uh, in all that snow. Um, I got into all of the schools, and I got into UNC Chapel Hill, but I, I didn't want to be so close to home. Um, and I wanted to get away, but at the time, you know, it was really scary because I was very shy. I was very introverted. I, you know, I'm I'm very sheltered, and DC just felt like this big city, and it's rough, and you know, tumble, and like, how am I actually going to um, be a, a like? There was a real question in my mind whether I would be able to survive at Howard. Um, well, you're not because... shy
0: now. Something happened. <laughs>
1: Something happened Something happened, yes. Yeah, but I really was back then. And so it it was a real question. And I think a lot of people in my family were very surprised. My mother was very nervous about me going to this school. You know, she felt like, you know, at that time, Howard was in a neighborhood that, you know, um, was, you know, pretty, uh, you know, it it, it had some rough areas. So, you know, everyone was very nervous about it in my family. Um, But... uh, I I was determined to go and, you know, it was the best, it was the best decision for me.
0: You know, you mentioned a different world and we all watch that. So um, here's a little information. According to the National Center for Education Statistics, between 1976 and 1994, HBCU enrollment jumped by like 26%. But mm-hmm. most of that uptick happened between 1986 and 1994, which was when a different world was mm. a top-rated show <laughs> on on television, and so it's not shocking, you know. We watched it when I was in college too, you know, in the in the mm-hmm. 80s, and we thought we were all living um, that <laughs> life of um, Hillman College.
1: Yeah no and so many people in the book talk about how a different world influenced them um Tendai Kumba who went to Spellman um, she talks about being on Spellman's campus and seeing, um, you know, Rudy Huxtable yes. or Keisha Knight Pullum, um, who went to Spellman. And she, you know, after, and, you know, Tendai talks about being a huge fan of A Different World and then actually seeing Keisha Knight Pullum just on the elevator and like how that was so amazing to her. Um, I mean, so, and Brandon Gilpin, who's one of the youngest people or the youngest person in the book who just graduated he actually when he was at Morehouse um he got to work with oh he got to work with Jasmine Guy on another show that they were doing um called The Quad I think for BET um and he talked about that full circle moment of actually you know being on a show where Jasmine Guy who was obviously Whitley in a different world like so I mean all, all the essays pretty much talked about a different world. Some of them I had to like just be like, okay, I think we, <laughs> we said it we enough. Got, we said we it got, enough. <laughs> we got it, because so I, because people are gonna think we were we're just promoting the show, but it was amazing the impact that that show had.
0: Oh, it did, and and I pro- it probably is what brought a lot of black celebrities' children to HBCUs yeah, at the time. Because absolutely. when I think of the '80s when I was there, I remember. At least for a short time, Sharon Mayfield, like Curtis Mayfield's daughter, was in school mm-hmm. with me. And then mm-hmm. um, one of the um, four tops, oh. Duke Fakir, his son, Nazim, I'm saying his name wrong, but Naz, we just called him Naz. But it's like that it was a you really mixed um, your everyday black experiences at home with the wider world in a yeah. way that you probably wouldn't have been able to do, maybe if you went to a predominantly, you know, white institution.
1: Yeah, yeah. No, and, and like that comes up so much as like the diversity of the experience and how you did have like these, you know, Black people who summer at like Martha's Vineyard. I ran into that at Howard and we have other people who talk about that in the book. Um, and I never knew black people like that. You know, that wasn't my experience. You know, we're working class. Well, because you went to
0: the Outer Banks in North Carolina. Yeah, yeah, you know, we, didn't I, go. we didn't
1: even <laughs> we didn't even go to the Outer Banks. We was we went to you know a, a families. You know, we went to family members' houses and we slept on the floor. <laughs> you know. We, we didn't even go on them type of vacations. So that was like so different to me. And then um, there's also the very funny story from Lauren F. Ellis, who does a whole bunch of special effects stuff for like Aquaman and all the big movies. Uh, but she talks about running into her first black Republican on mm. Hampton's campus. Oh yes. So there, there is a diversity, I think, on these campuses that people don't realize because black people are monolithic.
0: I'm speaking with NPR's Aisha Roska, host of Weekend Edition Sunday, and we're chatting about her book HBCU Made, a celebration of the Black college experience. There's some common threads, of course, you know, through this um, book of essays, and one of them, I guess, is that several people mentioned how they, uh, maybe they grew up and went to predominantly white. You know, schools or high schools before you know going to um, an HBCU. I mean, you talked about even some of your experiences in high school, and a lot of your classes. You know, you were like the only black, the only black, the person. only black yeah, the student only black there. Yeah. So, is there yeah. some sense that um, I guess with this love that HBCUs are kind of a sanctuary for some black yeah. students who who probably grew up in these predominantly white spaces
1: absolutely I mean I, I look at them as you know and I, I want to be clear not perfect not as we we're saying not perfect but a safe haven Um, they can offer a safe haven um, for students and particularly like when you're trying to just find yourself and not have to worry about you know we have you know multiple students who talk about even if they went to an HBCU for undergrad then they go to a predominantly white institution for graduate school. And then they talked about the difference. Um, Nicole Perkins, who's a writer and and a, a poet, she talked about, you know, going to Ohio State and like feeling like she was being questioned, like how she was able to even know what she was talking about and being the only student being questioned in that way and how when she was at Dillard, it was totally different. Right. Like it wasn't that she wasn't questioned. It wasn't that people didn't, you know, say challenge her. But when they did, it was to shore up the arguments or to expose cracks in it and not to say, well, how are you even able to think, right. you know, or how are you even able to, to like, why are you even here? Well, questioning your things.
0: Questioning your intellect, actually. Your
1: intellect and how different that is. And I think not having that specific pressure on you frees up a lot of students to be more and to grow in ways that they wouldn't otherwise.
0: And also it makes me think that, you know, people that I know, like our friend, comedian Roy Wood Jr., you yes. can totally F up. You can yeah, totally absolutely. do something you shouldn't do, steal something like he did. Yes. Um, definitely all his academic dreams were like going down the tube. But he credits with FAMU because he's a graduate of Florida AM University like me. But yes. no, he credits the school and its administration for sort of like giving him another chance. Yeah, and absolutely. He, you know, he graduated, and he, now the rest is history.
1: Rest, the rest is history, and I should say, you know, that you were the one who put me in touch with Roy Wood Jr. <laughs> I'll give you that credit. Um, and he was the first person I reached out to, and the first person that said yes. He said yes immediately. Um, and so I will always be grateful for that. And he delivered. Um, and so I, I will be forever grateful to Roy Wood Jr. for that. Um. And, and but in his story, which I, I, I love, you know, he talks about, like you said, getting into trouble with the law and feeling like he let everyone down. Um, and really, I think he worked at like a Golden Corral for um, a, a time just trying to get himself together and then having to go to the campus and talk to professors and ask them to vouch for him mm-hmm. to, 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 to get back. Um, To get a second chance. Um, And I think that what his story shows and other stories in the book is that that HBCUs also offer redemption Um, and they they offer a second chance for a lot of people because there are times when there are students who are let in at an HBCU who might not have been um, accepted at other places, um, and they're given a chance. And a lot and, of them are
0: first-generation college first students. First-generation, they're, they're yes. fam- They didn't have families that were able to prep them before sending them no. away. Yeah.
1: yeah. Yeah, and so you see that, um, you know, one of the people in the book, Marquise Brown, who's a digital marketer, he talks about going to Hampton and, you know, having to get tutored um, because he had, you know, kind of had less direction when he was in high school, Um, And he talks about being tutored by a black mathematician and what it meant to him just emotionally and for his um, his mindset to see a black man, a black male mathematician um, and to who was helping him and not judging him and how that meant so much to him. And then, you know, he goes on to be, you know, an honor student and, and all of these things, but because he was given a chance by Hampton. Mm -hmm. HBCUs are not just A back in the day thing But they are A today thing, right? Like it's what it's not just what they did, but what they're doing. And you see that Brandon Gilpin, who I think I mentioned, is he's an actor. He's the youngest person in the book. He only graduated about you know two years ago uh, from Morehouse. And then you also see uh, people like you and Branford Marsalis, who are giving back to HBCUs and teaching at HBCUs. Um, Legendary Branford Marsalis, and he talked he talked about um, being asked why. Why did he go to teach at an HBCU? And he said, it's about the culture. It's about the culture.
0: So are you encouraging your little ones as we talk about legacy? um, (laughs) Are just young folks in general to attend HBCUs?
1: Well I definitely with my kids they have their Howard shirts but you know how it is when it's like when your mother is pushing it they're kind of like oh mommy mm. we don't want to hear that but I do keep you know now that I got the book I'm telling them you can also be HBCU made so I, I, I am telling them um, my three babies that you know this can be you too <laughs> but I mean for, for young people coming up I hope that they'll read the book and just get a taste of it and consider it obviously HBCUs are not going to be right for every person and they they cannot educate every black person in in the world and in this country but I think that they occupy such a special space Um, and I think what this does is give context to you know a lot of you know black people or just like really the world is is looking at hbcus in a new way when you have beyonce doing homecoming and um you know you have like all of this attention on hbcus yeah
0: lebron Um, james buying athletes tennis shoes (laughs) yeah yeah (laughs) absolutely
1: and you get so you get all of this attention and this gives some context to that like why is this important what you know what is you know who are the majorettes who are doing all these dances and stuff and inspiring uh beyonce like why what is this all about i think that that's what this book provides is is the background and the context for that
0: well aisha roscoe thank you so much aisha roscoe is the host of npr's weekend edition sunday she's also the editor of HBCU Made, A Celebration of the Black College Experience. Thank you so much for this love letter, Aisha Roscoe.
1: Thank you so much. And, and once again, thank you for your love letter uh, to FAMU and also to your dad. Um, and I, I'm so grateful for it.
0: Thank you. HBCU 101 continues. I have a conversation with an African American family from Raleigh about how they have helped navigate their high school senior through the college selection process. You're listening to Do South. I'm building me a home. I'm building
2: me a home. I'm building me a home. home. home.
0: back in class on Due South with our new series, HBCU 101, where we look at the enduring impact of historically black colleges and universities in the South. Well, this scene is a common occurrence on social media this time of year. Families recording the nail-biting moment when they find out if their loved one was accepted at the University of their Dreams. Good,
1: congratulations, baby. Oh, my baby, yes, he got into Morehouse, you oh, yeah, baby.
0: In this viral video, a young man was running up and down the street when he found out he was accepted into Morehouse College an HBCU in Atlanta. Meanwhile, the White family of Raleigh has a lot to celebrate and to ponder. The Reverend Dr. Harry L. White Jr., pastor of Watts Chapel Missionary Baptist Church, is here with his wife, Dr. Shantae Brown-White, a professor of mass communication and interim associate dean of arts, social sciences, and humanities at North Carolina Central University. Also joining us is their 18-year-old daughter, Kai White. She is a senior at Wake Young Women's Leadership Academy at St. Augustine's University. Welcome to Do South. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Well, first for Shante and Harry, because I've known your family for a little while, I know that you both attended an HBCU. Um, didn't you meet and fall in love at Howard University? I don't know, am I making that up? But did that happen? We did meet. We met. And you didn't fall in love at Howard? It came later.
2: That's another story for another <laughs> okay. day. We'll just we'll
0: just keep it at you met at Howard University met, in DC. We C.
2: were friends. We were friends. At Howard University.
0: So tell me, um, tell me about Howard University and why you attended that particular institution. Harry?
2: Uh, Howard University was a great experience in my life. I'm a native of Baltimore, Maryland. Thus, I was exposed to black college life throughout my childhood. A lot of my parents' friends, father's friends in particular, attended HBCUs all across the spectrum. Coppin, Morgan, Bowie, even those in Carolina, uh, A&T, Central, I knew I have older cousins who went to HBCUs, Uh, University of Maryland, Eastern Shore, right, Uh, Morgan, Coppin, uh, Morehouse, Howard. So I got bit by the bug early because of exposure. I think I got waitlisted at Morehouse. I went to Morgan, but I knew too many friends from high school going to Morgan. (laughs) Got accepted to Howard. So I think Howard, I thought, would be the best fit for me. And I'm a 80s child, 70s child, cut my teeth in the eighties. So a different world oh, yes. really captured my imagination. And uh channel 32 growing up in Baltimore was the public station broadcasted by Howard University. So we got a lot of exposure to Howard University football games on Saturdays through channel thirty-two that was broadcast in the entire DMV. Oh, there are a lot of
0: schools around you, but you know, you didn't mention, say, American University, Georgetown, University of Maryland, College Park. I mean, so you had an HBCU family. Is that what you're saying? And they actually instilled in you early that you should go to an HBCU.
2: Probably the people I was closest to went to HBCUs. I had other people that went to University of Maryland College Park uh Georgetown I knew Georgetown was not a HBCU <laughs> even though I was a Georgetown fan and still a fan because of the basketball team I just had more people closer to me who went to HBCUs as opposed to PWIs hmm. so it was an unconscious influence and probably bias in my life
0: oh I understand I've I've lived that Shantae, tell me about what
4: brought you to Howard Well, I am from the Midwest, Kansas City, Missouri, where we only have one HBCU, which is Lincoln University. Um, I didn't have the same exposure. In fact, as he was talking, I was trying to think, well, who did I know that went to an HBCU? Of course, I had heard of Howard. I had heard of Spelman. I'd heard of the names um, that we think of. Not necessarily familiar with all of the state HBCUs, um, but I would probably say the biggest influence for me probably was a different world. So uh, we were probably about juniors or maybe sophomores when that came out. And um, I thought and uh, we had a whole crew of people. I went to a predominantly um, white, all-girls high school, and several of us did choose to go to HBCUs as well as the kids in my church. So maybe I I, I take that back. I was exposed to people in my church who had gone to HBCUs, but I definitely would say it was not as personalized as um, Harry for me.
0: I have to ask Kai. So you grew up in an HBCU home, um, did you feel any nudging, you know, that when it was time for you to select a school that it would have to be an HBCU?
5: Um, I didn't necessarily feel pressured, but I always wanted to just because I was kind of around, surrounded by HBCU. So I always kind of wanted to explore that option for myself. Um both my parents went to HBCU, and now my older sister is currently at HBCU, and I grew up in a church where a lot of people went to HBCUs, so it always kind of sparked my interest, and I also have the opportunity to get that HBCU experience for myself right now um, at St. Augustine's University, taking college classes, so it was always something
0: that kind of sparked my interest. I, I know, and especially if your mother's walking around the house every day with a Howard <laughs> sweatshirt on, a Howard T-shirt on. That has to do a little bit, for one. So I have to ask um, Shanta and Harry, what's your approach to guiding, you know, your kids through the college selection process? You know, what do you consider some of the most important factors, you know, that you wanted them to consider? Because I know your oldest daughter is at Hampton right now. She is in HBCU.
4: And both of them made the decision themselves that they wanted to go to an HBCU. Um, our older daughter Nia was considered for the top scholarship at UNC, and so we—I forgot what it was called. So she got an interview. She wasn't accepted, um, into the program. But it was like, oh, if you get this, and this is free versus an HBC—I don't know—that's going to be a hard oh, decision. Money, money, right? Will always money always play wins. A factor. But I think both of them wanted an HBCU. But I think for um both of them, we want to find a good fit for them specifically. So if they chose a different type of school, we would be okay with that. Um, I think one of the things that I appreciate most about attending Howard University is you're culturally centered. And so you're not on the margins. You're not trying to figure out how to fit in uh, and not to say that you don't have to figure those dynamics out, but it's not going to be because of race. Would you add anything else?
2: As a father, I, I, do not want my daughters to graduate with debt. So that was an unspoken agreement that we made as parents that we didn't want them to graduate undergrad with debt. Uh, Grad school, professional school, we're going to help you. We're going to support you. Yet if you do well in undergrad, somebody will pay you to be a good student in their graduate PhD master's program. So, think finances and, and that goes with fit so i think my wife is a thousand percent accurate
0: kai so this has got to be an exciting time for you right now yes you feel is. real special as the mail starts coming in <laughs> i don't even know if the acceptance notices come via email now or it's via email or the paper uh, you don't get
5: a letter in the mail oh no. i've gotten letters like after but not the initial letters
0: and Several of the universities, of course, that you've applied to have let you know their decision. You've been selected. So can you tell us about, I guess, a few of them and why you wanted to apply for those schools?
5: So um, I applied to, I think, 13 colleges total, and 10 of them were HBCUs. And so I always knew from, like, an early age that I wanted to attend HBCU. I did apply to a few um, non-UNC Charlotte Chapel Hill, and Sanford University in Alabama. Um, but I always knew that I was grabbing toward, gravitating towards HBCU, especially living in a state that has so many. Um, and right now, my top are kind of Howard, um, went to salem State, and Central.
0: What? North Carolina. <laughs> <laughs> That's a That's surprise. New. That's a right. <laughs> you didn't say ANT. Well, yep. You didn't you know. say North Carolina aunt. So good. how so how so how many schools have you heard from that you've gotten into so far? I've heard from 9. 9. Yes. The three um historically I guess white schools, or predominantly white schools, have you heard from them yet?
5: Yes, I have I actually just heard from Chapel Hill the other day. So that was the last
0: one. So you got into UNC Chapel Hill. Yes. Very exciting. So, Shante and Harry, what did you think about Kai even applying to UNC Chapel Hill, for example? Because I know it's the flagship state school in North Carolina, and actually in the in the country. But what did you think about her applying to that school, mainly because of the most recent U.S. Supreme Court ruling, the decision? I think NPR said, you know, the Supreme Court guts affirmative action, effectively ending race conscious admissions. Was it surprising when you even heard that that decision came down that way? It was disappointing, Okay.
2: yet not surprising because of the culture in which we live right now with certain persons serving in elected offices. I think um, there's always backlash where there's African-American progress. So it was disappointing, but not surprising. Um, I want Kai to have all of her options open. I think she will thrive at a Chapel Hill, at a Sanford, a UNC Charlotte, as she will thrive at a Howard, Winston-Salem State University, or a t My wife and I started at Howard. We went to PWIs for our graduate degrees that are both terminal. So I think she will do well wherever she lands.
0: You know, one important part of the admissions process is the personal essay. And the New York Times actually just recently reported, for example, that they've interviewed some young people of color who are actually highlighting their racial background in their essays to sort of get around the Supreme Court ruling. So I wanted to ask Kai, are you able to tell me some of the top points you said in your essay, or did you ever say your race in your essay? Or that wasn't important.
5: Uh, actually, I did talk about my race in my essay a lot. Um, I wrote about my experience going to a predominantly white school in middle school and how that affected me. Um, so that was like the main topic of my essay.
0: Mm. So how long did it take you to actually, I mean, write the essay? I mean, I think of how much thought probably went into, you know, making sure you presented yourself in the best way possible you know, like, because I want to know some of your extracurricular activities you got in all these schools. I just want to know, you know, what should one do to make sure, you know, they can get into the schools of their choice, whether it's an HBCU or predominantly white school?
5: Um, I would say the best advice I have is to start early, do community service, find what you're interested in and kind of stay consistent um, towards like how you want to brand yourself. Um, So at my school, I'm in, I'm on the mock trial team. I'm in um, student government and uh, the National Honor Society, Junior Serviton, which is like a service club. And then outside of school, I'm in Girl Scouts um, uh, and Delta gyms. So I would just say, really start as early as possible, like in ninth and 10th grade and try to create like longevity and consistency throughout your whole time.
0: Sounds great. You know, Shantae and Harry... What are some ways you're helping your children and maybe even other students in their college experience that maybe you wish you had help with when you were their age? Oh. Mm, well...
4: I think definitely our children had a different advantage than us. The two of us, we both are first generation. Um, My mom attended college, but not not graduate. But by the time I came along, it was like, hey, (laughs) we're just trying to navigate and to figure this out. So I do think in being on a, a college campus and not that I'm involved with admissions, Um, you know, I think that she's speaking what we talked about in terms of begin with the end in mind. So you can't wait until your sophomore year or to your junior year, because really you're applying with your last your your junior year is what you are applying right. with if you're trying to do those early decisions. Um, so beginning with the end in mind, and really, as she talked about, just what's your branding? So what brand do you want to speak for yourself by the time you get ready to graduate? I mean, in terms of um, Kai, I mean, we've done a lot of editing, lots of editing, lot, and she's a excellent, excellent writer. Uh, she doesn't own that. I think that she thinks that I'm saying it because she's my daughter, but I mean, I read college writing, and she is a phenomenal writer. Um, but even with being a good writer, it, we've gone through multiple revisions, Ooh. so you can't send the first one hot off the press. And so when she says to start early, she really did do that, and we're very proud of just how methodical she was in terms of applying for this. And t- I mean, it was a job. I mean, it was a second job, or not a second job, but I mean, of course, school was the first thing in the last semester. But I mean, we spent a lot of time writing many essays, not just for the application, but now even
0: um, for the scholarships. Well, Kai White, you couldn't go wrong. I mean, you, you learn from the best, right? And you followed through. And I know everyone is very excited. I'm even excited, you know, <laughs> to see where you'll go this this fall. So I want to thank you for being brave and sitting in that chair and talking about your future the way that you did. And also thank your parents for being here. I guess you guys were a little brave too. Reverend Dr. Harry L. White Jr. is the pastor of Watts Chapel Missionary Baptist Church in Raleigh. And Dr. Shante Brown White is a professor of mass communication and interim associate dean of the College of Arts, Social Sciences, and Humanities at North Carolina Central University. Thank you all very much for being here.
3: Thank you. Thank you. i my i my i my
0: You've been listening to HBCU 101 on Due South. Let us know what you think at South at WUNC.org. Our producers are Stacia Brown, Coldell Charco, and Rachel McCarthy. Denarius Thomas is our technical director. Aaron Kiever, our executive producer. For Jeff Tiberi, I'm Leonida Inge. This is North Carolina Public Radio, WUNC.